0: I'm super excited to teach on worship um, because I think that you know we've come into a place of evolution in the evangelical church. 20, 30 years ago, we actually um, didn't have this position, a worship pastor or a worship director. This is actually a fairly new thing. And I think that it's incredible that we begin to create space for this in our church and for uh, just having space for this on our staff. Um, what you've seen with that a lot of times is that you have a lot of incredible worship leaders, a lot of great singers, musicians, people who are talented in leading people in song. Um, but I, it, it, I've, what I've discovered is that um, it, it oftentimes is a rarity where you see people who are actually pastoring people in a place of worship, where there's worship mothers and fathers, and the beauty of of what I think this season is, is you're starting to see worship mothers and fathers being raised up, not just in America, but all across the world, who are truly discipling people in the place of worship, and so I believe that's what we need in this season, is worship mothers and fathers. I believe that worshipers and worship leaders and worship songwriters should be experts in the Word of God. They should be some of the best theologians because everything that worship about is rooted in the word. And so once you get the scripture today, um, the good news is there's a lot of scripture in this message, which means it's already anointed, so I don't have to crush it this morning (laughs) because there's going to be a lot of scripture. My my desire is that you'll be able to go back and read and study this yourself and that Holy Spirit would reveal stuff to you as you go back over these scriptures. So... Worship is one of those topics in the Word of God that is so expansive. It's kind of like the kingdom, right? Like, you can't, you can't just teach one message on the kingdom and call it, call it quits. It, it, is, it is very expansive. It's got many layers to it. And so I think today, the main focus that I want for us as a church is to really just get the foundation of worship, to get the precepts down really solid. Um, I love corporate worship. I love the culture of corporate worship and what we do here. And in the near future, I'm going I'm to actually divide that. I'm going I'm to take the opportunity to teach on that in the near future about why we do the things that we do. But today, the focus is to just get the foundation down. So I'm just going to pray real quick. Holy Spirit, we just ask that this morning you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, you would be the loudest voice in the room. God, we want to catch what you have for us for worship, Lord. Do a new thing in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. So what I want to ask you to do today is just hold loosely everything you believe about worship um, I believe that that Riverstone Church, the reason I'm here is because I think that this church has the best theology regarding worship and what we're supposed to be doing during this time, what God is calling us into. That is why it's an honor for me to be a part of this church. But I know a lot of us, we've grown up in church culture, and we have a lot of different ideologies, and we've been taught a lot, and we've witnessed a lot. So I just want to invite you to hold that loosely today as we dive into it. So like anything in the Word, you have to jump back to the beginning, you want to look into the Old Testament to have context for uh, what it is that we're experiencing now in this new covenant and how we can appreciate that. So when we look in the word, since the beginning of time, God's desire was to dwell among his people. His desire was to be with them. But then what happened is sin came into the world and separation took place. When you look at worship in the Old Testament, you see that that it's actually a lot of times correlated with making offerings and sacrifices. The most often you see worship is is when it's actually combined with that. And so the reality is, is that worship in the old covenant was making offerings and sacrifices. And these offerings and sacrifices were not only for the atonement of sins, but it was also so that God could dwell among his people. We see that worship is connected to making offerings and sacrifices because it created space for God to to actually put his hand of favor on them and in a limited way be present with them. Price is necessary for presence. There, There needs to be a price for presence because God is a perfect and just God. He is perfect, he is just, and in order for him to dwell with us, there has to be a price for sin. And so we see this monotony of these offerings are made over and over again. There's all kinds of offerings, drink offerings, grain offerings, burnt animal offerings, all of it. That It was just a cycle, right? If I was like, man, I had a bad attitude the other day, I got to go sacrifice something to God. That's kind of, that was the gist of it. And so what we see, though, is that this wasn't working. This actually wasn't good enough. This wasn't what God designed or called us into. There was limitation. It was designated to a time, to a specific place, and actually to a specific people group, just the Jews were able to partake in this worship. There was limitation. We see that the Jewish people didn't even, um, and y'all can take the QR code off the screen too now, if you want, <laughs> just letting y'all know, I think anyone's got it. So, um, so there was limitation, right? There, 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 was, uh, there was a barrier between people and God, there was a distance. They, they didn't even call him by his name Yahweh, which is the name that he gave them because they thought it was too holy, right? Let alone did they call him father. And we see that it's not working. And so in Isaiah 29 and later on in Matthew, actually Jesus reads the scripture and this is what he says. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. So what we see is that this kind of worship isn't working, it's based on law, it's based on protocol, it's based on their actions and the things that they can do. But the beauty of this is that it's actually all pointing towards Jesus. It's foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would come and lay down his life for us. And when Jesus comes, he brings a new covenant and he flips the kingdom upside down, right? He brings in this, like, what would they would consider this paradox theology. He flips the kingdom upside down. He says the last will be first, love your enemies, all this stuff that's just blowing their minds. But he also completely redefines worship for us. Jesus pays the ultimate price, the final act of atonement. Because God said, the old way is not working. Your hearts need to be closer to me. And he said, that's what true worship is. I have to send my son so that you can be grafted into the family because I wanna be closer to you. And that is why Jesus came. When he died, the veil was torn, signifying that there would no longer be separation. The veil that led into the Holy of Holies where they would make offerings and sacrifices, it was torn. Now I think about the cross and the agony of what Jesus went through the 39 stripes on his back, the crown of thorns on his head, the nails in his hands and just the pain and the agony of that. But the most painful part of the cross, I think is this moment, in my my personal opinion, is is this moment where Jesus, before he takes his final breath and he says, it is finished, he cries out to his father and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe What takes place is Jesus in that moment, he becomes all of the sin, all of the iniquity of the world. Those things don't just die with him, but Jesus dies as those things. And there's actually for the first time in all of eternity, this separation that happens between Jesus and the father because he actually becomes sin. But Jesus in that moment experiences separation so that we never have to experience separation again. And that's the beauty of what the cross is, is that now we become the dwelling place. We become the holy of holies. This temple, our being, comes into union, communion, right? The blood and the body, when we come into union with the revelation of the the price that was paid for us, we become the dwelling place of God. Now, we don't just get to call him Yahweh, but we get to call him something closer, Father. And that's what Jesus did. I could stop there, but that's just the foundation for the foundation. So I had to give that as context for what we're gonna talk about with worship. So worship in the Bible, the word worship is in there over 180 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the word praise is actually in there over 250 times. And we're not really gonna jump in that yet. I wanna get our foundation first today, but we will in the future. So the word worship 180 times. The Hebrew word for worship is shikah. And this means to bow down and press your face against the earth. The Greek word for worship is like it. It's proskeneo. Proskeneo means to kiss the hand, to fall on one's knees. So what we see is, is worship is, a, is actually, it's a, it's a posture. It's when you're on your knees and your face is against the earth. It's this humble place of reverence before God. Jonathan David Helser an incredible worship father in the evangelical church right now. This is what he says about worship. Worship is when our heart is raised above our head. So if you think about shaka proskeneo, when you're on your knees and your face is against the earth, this is one of the few times, unless you hang upside down a lot, where, where your heart is raised above your head. And that is just like what Jesus is talking about in Isaiah. He says, their hearts were far from me. So the true act of worship is actually to lift your heart up closer to God because it's a matter of the heart. The first time I experienced this revelation, I was um, at a One Thing conference. I was actually with Mason uh, a few years ago um, in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, worship was going on all around me. And I don't know, but like, like many of you, I too, as the worship pastor, sometimes get distracted during worship. And I have a hard time focusing and, and just like lining myself up with what God's doing. So when that happens, what I love to do is I like to do something physical that says, God, I'm, I'm in it. Like I want to, like I'm going to do something as a statement of faith saying I want to connect with what you're doing in worship right now. So I actually, in that moment, I got on my knees, put my face to the ground. I actually did that proscaneo, that shakaw posture of worship. And I was there for a while and just like felt the presence of the Lord and all of a sudden the blood started rushing to my head and I was like, man, I'm getting kind of lightheaded. But in that moment, what happened is, is my temple started to pulse and I felt the pulse on my temples as I was getting lightheaded. What I realized in that moment is that my head, my brain actually can't even function without my heart pumping blood to it. That everything that my heart is fuels everything else in my body. You know, you can be brain dead and your heart can still be pumping. But you can never be heart dead and living, right? Now I know there's, yeah, don't don't send me emails. There's like people whose heart stopped and then you know started pumping again. but you get that picture that it's all a matter of the heart and that's what worship is about. Ephesians 3:19 says this. we actually read this last week, I think, with our liturgy, I was like just I had no idea, and it's setting us up perfect for, perfectly for this, so look at God. Um, so Ephesians 3.19 says this, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge and or understanding, that surpasses knowledge or understanding, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So this word surpasses in Ephesians 3.19, actually in the Greek means hyperbolos. And the word hyperbolos might sound Familiar to you because it actually is uh, where the English word hyperbole comes from. And if you know the definition of hyperbole, that means an intended exaggeration. To like seriously exaggerate something in a big way. That's hyperbole. But actually, the word hyperbolos doesn't mean that at all. The word hyperbolos surpasses in that verse means literally to throw beyond. So when we read it, we can actually read it like this. To know this love that throws you beyond your knowledge and your understanding, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. This means that when we receive this love revelation, that it's not just helping us surpass our understanding. It's not like just a little bit beyond it, but it actually is throwing us into a place we've never been before, something further. It throws us beyond our understanding and our logic And isn't that the perfect example of proskeneo, of shaka, of the posture of the heart? When our heart is raised above our heads, our heads are below our heart saying, understanding logic, the things that once made sense can't get me where I need to go and worship anymore, but it has to be a matter of the heart. Our intellect, our achievements, our accolades, our academia, the things that make sense. What made sense in the old covenant was like, if I mess up, I got to make an offering. I got to make a sacrifice. We got to balance the scales, right? And actually for us to comprehend the worth and the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, I truly believe it has to be a heart matter. Like if we're truly going to tap into that, it has to be a matter of the heart. That revelation of God's love will throw us beyond our understanding. And that is part of what worship is about. So now on a posture of worship above everything else, we lift our heart as an altar to God. And on that altar, we lay before him everything else as an offering. We lay before him anxiety, worry, depression, shame, sin, all of it. We lay that on the altar of our heart where there once was a temple and there was an altar where there were offerings made. Now we are that temple and our heart becomes that altar that we lift up to God in a posture of worship where we lay those things before him as an offering. When Jesus became the sacrificial lamb on the cross, like I said, those things didn't just die with him, but they, he died as those things. And when we abide in that revelation of this price that he paid, the great worth that he has, that there's nothing out of reach that his shed blood and broken body can't pay for. There's nothing out of reach. When we recognize his worth, we believe that nothing has a price that's too high that the broken body and the blood that was shed cannot pay for. See, the world will tell you that there's like this anxiety that's incurable in you. And I'm not gonna downplay the reality of it or, or, or the severity of these things that we experience in our common culture. What I'm also not gonna let worldly ideology do is remove the power, the supernatural power of what Jesus did on the cross. Because Jesus says, no matter what it is, the price I paid is worth it. It's like what I was talking about a couple weeks ago. It's the gospel of the instead. Jesus is saying, that's my stuff. I want it back. I own that stuff. I own it. I have a claim to it because I paid the price for it. So Rick Pino, another father in our, in our, in our worship culture, who I love, um, wild guy, <laughs> but incredible, incredible person. He says this, our worship can only truly go as far as our revelation of the worth of Jesus. Oftentimes when I find myself trying to posture myself into worship, I say, Holy Spirit, give me a deeper revelation of the worth of Jesus. Because if I could just grasp this, then I know I could give you what you already own. I know I could give you what you've already paid a price for. And then that becomes an act of worship. And this leads me into the next definition of worship. It's the actual word worship in our English language that we get from the old English, the Anglo-Saxon word, which is way CP. That word way CP" simply means to give worth to something. It's literally a worth ship, a ship of worth, so a vessel of worth. And when I think about the worth of Jesus, I always come back to the story of Mary in the alabaster jar. So what takes place, it's, in, it's actually in all four of the Gospels where Mary, she's coming into this room where these, <clears throat> where these men are, and she's already like kind of breaking the rules, showing up with this perfume, this alabaster jar, and she takes it and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. This expensive perfume, pours it on the feet of Jesus, begins to wash his feet with her hair and with her tears and it's a mess. And everyone's like, what is going on? They're looking at her, and they're like, okay, that's too much. Like, don't you think you're being a little melodramatic right now? And they're starting to judge what's happening, right? The disciples, because of how expensive this perfume is, they say, we could have sold that. What a waste. We could have sold that and given it the money to the poor, it's worth more than a year's worth of wages. Scholars believe that's like 300 denarii. So, you know, for example, that's like me taking $50,000 in cash and laying it right here and setting it on fire and saying, God, this is for you. Like y'all would probably come throw your bodies on this pile of cash to put out the fire. Um, so, but the point is, is it, that that is an analogy of, of kind of what they thought was taking place. And all, like I said, all of the Gospels talk about this story. But in John, I love the Gospel of John because it's different. It's a, it's a little bit more personal. Um, in the other Gospels, they say this woman, you know, but in the Gospel of John, they say Mary...